I love a scandal. To watch the world burn and lose their minds after finding out the fine print eliminated another's entitlement. Or an ironic twist where a saint becomes a Satan. I especially love it when this involves those within the third sector. For years the greedy and evil have hidden behind the good name charity for too long. I myself a witness to these wrongdoings, decided to create a podcast to uproot their stories buried just a little too soon in the archive. Uncharitable is a narrative, storytelling podcast about true crimes and questionable practices related to that third sector. So join me, host Odea, as I attempt to smoke out the walls that dress in a sheep's clothing. Seek us wherever you find your podcasts. Or consider contributing to the community on Instagram, Reddit or X. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Up first on the docket, let's discuss the case for The Dream Season 1 from Pushkin. Here's a synopsis from the show page. We've all got that friend or cousin who steadily hawks some overpriced miracle drink, leggings, or shampoo on social media. They aren't just trying to sell you something, but would like to offer you the opportunity of a lifetime to achieve riches while working from home on your own terms. You've probably been too afraid or too loving or too reasonable to confront them, but not us. This season on The Dream, we go inside the world of multi-level marketing to expose this pyramid-shaped business model for what it is. Join us on this bizarre journey filled with snake oil salesmen, shifty millionaires, struggling single moms, and a few sweet grandmas. Yes, I can't wait. And to take your listening experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Key players this week are host Jane Marie and co-host Dan Gallucci. They are both so stylish and cool looking. It's really a community service to us all that they chose careers in podcasting instead of fashion dolls come to life. And while we're on the topic of Jane Marie and Dan, I know that some of you jumped in on The Dream Season 3 without hearing the first two seasons, so you missed out on a whole chunk of backstory, which I think adds to the allurement of the entire series. Dan and Jane Marie, I think, were dating or starting to date during Season 1, full-on dating in Season 2, and tragically broke up during Season 3. They had great chemistry and funny, flirty banter. You could easily forget you were listening to an investigative podcast and instead felt part of a fun hang. So much so that it could catch you off guard when Jane Marie and Dan would tag team interview shady industry characters, taking them to task. These two would go from fashion dolls to cage fighters. Jane Marie sharpened her chops working under the emperor of podcasting, Ira Glass, at This American Life. 
But unlike many of her other fellow TAL alums, Jane Marie's voice and writing style doesn't feel anything like a This American Life spinoff. It's uniquely her own, full of spirit and sass. Punctuated by Dan Gallucci's ability to extract succulent tidbits from tedious research and hold his own during the aforementioned cage match interviews. I'm especially impressed with Dan considering investigative journalism is a second act for him. Homeboy used to be the guitarist for Modest Mouse. See, I told you these two were fascinating. Side note, I'm seriously considering doing a podcast spinoff about all the dirty true crime podcasts, gossip, and drama. Am I the only one completely enthralled with that kind of stuff? Let me know. I've got my finger hovering over the red record button. When it comes to the dream, yes, season three was very uneven, partially due to Jane Marie picking up the pieces after a crappy point in her life post-breakup from Dan Gallucci. If this is your introduction into Jane Marie, you're seeing her in black and white instead of full Technicolor. That's why I want to revisit season one, one of my favorite seasons of any podcast ever in the whole universe. The dream first came onto the scene in 2018, which doesn't seem that long ago, but so much has happened since then in the world of multi-level marketing. That Lulu Rich docuseries came out, as well as that documentary about Herbalife called Betting on Zero. Nexium was kind of related, plus lots of other adjacent properties exposing shady practices they've come to light since this series first aired. The theme is almost ubiquitous now in the world of true crime. But back in 2018, I had very little awareness about MLMs. But after the Dream Season 1, now I can spot these things a multi-level mile away. Guess what I also love about this series? Instead of shaming or making fun of folks who have participated in direct sales, Jane Marie shows deep compassion and understanding for why this business model can be so appealing. She validates the positive experiences and explores the non-monetary benefits. This series advocates for a better model so that participants can learn from the pitfalls and hopefully avoid losing money in the future. So before we jump in, let's get a working definition for multi-level marketing, also frequently referred to as direct sales or network marketing. These companies will recruit non-salaried participants to sell their products or services, as well as recruit others to join their team, creating a long chain or downline or pyramid shape, if you will. Usually, the more people a participant recruits to sell on behalf of the company, the more money said participant makes in the form of commission. Sounds cool in theory, but before we start shilling out banana leggings, let us journey down the long, strange history of multi-level marketing. Picture this. The year is 1886, and you're a housewife home alone while your husband is out working. There's a knock on the door. It's a traveling book salesman who introduces himself as David H. McConnell. You have the good sense not to let him in. After all, door-to-door salesmen at this time have a terrible reputation. They were thought to be unscrupulous swindlers, often selling defective products and then skipping town before you could get your money back. You know better than to entertain a sales pitch from a door-to-door salesman. But just as you're about to close the door on David H. McConnell's face, he pulls out a tiny glass bottle and presents it to you. 
saying, Here you are, madam. It's a free sample of homemade perfume, and it's all yours if you allow me inside to give a brief book presentation. You have no interest in David's books, but a bottle of free perfume in exchange for a quickie sales pitch? Why not? And that's how David gained entry into many a homes. He'd leave his card behind, and women began contacting him. Not for his books, but for more of that delightful homemade perfume. Dude, seriously though, what exactly was in that perfume, David? Well, whatever it was, his fragrances became a viral hit in the late 1800s. Soon he launched the California Perfume Company, then expanded to overseas European markets and renamed the company Avon. David also began recruiting a female sales team. He hired his former book sales associate, Mrs. Persis Foster Eames Albee. With a name like that, you knew this woman was a pistol. She became a top seller and recruited other women to join Avon and sell perfume door to door. Sales skyrocketed. Many other companies soon followed suit with this sales strategy. Home Alone housewives felt much more comfortable answering the door and entertaining sales pitches from other women. It was also a great way for women to work part-time and earn extra income. Win-win-win, right? Eh, maybe? Let's just say this floral-scented arrangement came with a pretty big thorn. Here's the good. There were very limited options for women looking for work at that time, so these direct sales jobs could be an excellent opportunity, giving them a flexible schedule, they could structure their work around childcare and other responsibilities. And also, this sales model was one of the only ways to sell products to minority communities, i.e. black beauty products. In fact, a black female-owned company called Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing sold hair care and makeup palettes specially formulated for black women's hair types and skin tones. Most of the chain general stores at that time wouldn't carry products like this, so the direct sales model was the perfect way to get these beauty products into the hands of target consumers. Inside note, Madam C.J. Walker was born to enslaved parents in the 1860s in the Louisiana Delta. She was orphaned by age seven, married by age 14, and worked her way up to own one of the most widely known and financially successful companies in the U.S. Madam C.J. Walker was recorded as the first female self-made millionaire in America. Her story is incredible. She could have her own episode in my other future spinoff show, True Fascinating History Feed. So that's the rose that came from this model. Now for the thorn. Companies enjoyed recruiting female sellers because they didn't have to pay them as much and they were easy to exploit. Hurrah! By 1902, the Avon Company had over 10,000 female direct salespeople in their ranks. Then came the Tupperware craze. In the 1940s, founded by Earl Tupper, he first started selling his wares in general stores and then took to the door-to-door sales model, which eventually led to the party craze, made famous by top Tupperware seller Brownie Wise. And yes, that's her real name. She exhibited the glamour and poise of an old Hollywood movie star, but was still fun and relatable to the everyday woman. Brownie threw epic Tupperware parties. She'd give away high-end name-brand items from her personal closet as prizes. She was the first female to grace the cover of Business Week. Brownie Wise quickly became the face of the Tupperware brand. 
much to Earl Tupper's chagrin. He fired Brownie after she allegedly degraded the company image because she supposedly used a Tupperware bowl as a dog dish. Brownie had no stock in the company. Many of her assets, including her vehicle and house, were owned by the company. They were taken away. After a lawsuit, she was paid out a settlement of $30,000. The company was netting $2 million a year at that point. Earl Tupper removed all mention of Brownie in all Tupperware historical and marketing materials. Hmm, is it just me or is anyone else feeling compelled to take a running start and kick Earl squarely in his Tupperwares? Man, this is another sensational story in its own right. And lucky for us, there's talk of a possible biopic in the works starring Sandra Bullock as Brownie Wise. So keep your lids peeled for that one. Moving on to the 1960s, we saw the birth of direct sales makeup company Mary Kay, as well as a household cleaner health and beauty company called Amway. More on them later. First, we need to talk about Holiday Magic. The most delightful name from the mind of one of the most dark and sinister characters in MLM history, founder William Penn Patrick. I kind of don't believe a word of this guy's origin story, but here it goes. According to William Penn Patrick, the year was 1964 in San Rafael, California. 33-year-old Penn Patrick had recently filed for bankruptcy after yet another failed business venture. Down on his luck and not sure where to turn to next, he went on a walk around the neighborhood to clear his head. That's when he got a whiff of the most delightful fruity smell. He followed his nose to a garage and went inside. Some might call this action breaking and entering. But others, including Dan Galushi from The Dream, suggest that Penn Patrick simply smelled an opportunity. Inside this garage was the entire inventory of a fruity beauty company called Zoline, a company that was going out of business. It sounded a lot like the kind of products that would have been sold at Bath and Body Works back in the day. Side note, remember in middle school when you would borrow a hoodie from that guy you had a crush on and bring it home and spray it with Bath and Body Works Palmarium Mist? hoping it would cast some sort of spell and make your crush fall in love with you when you returned it back to him the next day. Oh, you don't remember doing that? Yeah, me neither. Anyways, according to the recently bankrupt William Penn Patrick, he bought the entire inventory for $16,250. That's over 100 grand in today's money. I'm highly sus at this whole origin story, but whatever. We know for sure that William Penpatrick somehow acquired a bunch of fruit-scented cosmetic products and sold them under the brand of Holiday Magic. He also started selling distributorships and encouraged franchisees to make more money by selling more franchises. He was a multimillionaire by the age of 36. He was also super into something called Mind Dynamics, essentially harnessing the power of the mind through visualization and meditation, then using this power to sell holiday magic franchises. William Penpatrick wrote a few manifestos and recorded his deep thoughts onto vinyl records. They sound like the manic spiral ramblings of someone who's eaten too many Berry Breeze bath bombs. William Penpatrick also conducted leadership seminars for a whopping $1,000 a pop in 1960s money. 
seminars that were required for distributors to attend if they wanted to move up in the company. Okay, so $1,000 for a work retreat sounds a little steep, but it must have been kind of luxe or at least packed with informative tips on how to take your business to the next level, right? Nope. Instead, these seminars were held in a cheap Bay Area motel. Attendees were forced into coffins and or strung up onto wooden crosses. They were encouraged to share their deepest personal shameful secrets, then berated by the rest of the group, Elon School General Meeting style. Sounds like a horror movie, right? Guess what? There's a horror movie based on these seminars. Some former employees in attendance wrote a book based on their terrifying real-life experiences at a William Penpatrick leadership seminar, and that book was turned into a fictionalized movie called The Circle of Power. And while Penn Patrick is running his horror cult, I mean leadership seminar, more interesting gatherings are popping up around the country. A lot of these are influenced by the New Thought movement. Jane Marie interviews a woman named Nan who participated in a groovy little activity back in the 70s called the Airplane Game. Like-minded, new-agey folks would meet up and buy into a metaphorical flight for like $1,200. First, you start in the back of the plane and work your way up front to the metaphorical pilot seat. When you're there, you take home a big pot of cash, like 20 grand. Nan thought this was far out. She would participate in four flights at once, then throw around her cash earnings on top of her bed, jumping around in celebration. But then the airplane game took a nosedive. There were rumors that FBI plants were in on it, trying to put a stop to the game because they weren't paying taxes on their earnings. That scared a lot of people off, so it was getting harder to recruit high-caliber participants. More and more sketchballs were joining in. The whole sitch got pretty aggro. And in 1973, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Trade Commission, they start cracking down on schemes like the airplane game and companies like Holiday Magic. Eventually, William Penpatrick's company was found guilty of deceptive trade practices and labeled as an illegal pyramid scheme. They were forced to shut down. Penpatrick later dies after crash landing his private plane, a World War II era P-51 Mustang fighter bomber, into his backyard. He died doing what he loved, and I'm assuming he had his plane outfitted to drop bath bombs. Anyways, fresh off their win against Holiday Magic, regulators had a new target in their sights, the American Way Company, better known as Amway. Started in 1959 by Jay Van Andel and Richard DeVos, Amway was quickly becoming the largest and most profitable multi-level marketing company in the U.S. In 1979, a case was brought forth to the FTC, a nearly identical case to the Holiday Magic suit. But this time, the FTC found that Amway did not fit the definition of a pyramid scheme because distributors were not technically paid to recruit people or buy large stocks of inventory, I guess. I don't know. I've read this a couple of times. I still have no idea how they got out of this charge. But they were found guilty of price fixing and hit with a slap on the wrist fine of $100,000. Other than that, Amway was allowed to continue business as usual. This ruling came as a shock to those who investigated and argued the Amway case. 
It basically gave other direct sales companies a blueprint on how to exactly navigate their way around being classified as an illegal pyramid scheme. Amway ballooned into a billion-dollar brand, and soon more MLMs popped up, like LuluRoe, a.k.a. the Smelly Leggings Company, and Herbalife, a.k.a. why are there so many neon-colored nutritional drinks on my Facebook feed all of a sudden? That's when we get to my favorite part of the dream season one. It's when Jane Marie recruits the super chic lifestyle beauty writer Mackenzie Kassab to go undercover and join an MLM. Mackenzie wants to stick to the beauty space, so she considers unique and it works, but ultimately chooses the makeup company Lime Life by Alcone. So she signs up to be a beauty guide in training. I think it's like $200 to start. And it will take about two weeks for her makeup products to arrive. But day one, LimeLife is already encouraging Mackenzie to make posts about the products, share her experience, and recruit others to join her team. One suggestion she gets is to plan a fun party for friends and family in her network, like a makeup and my ties theme, give everyone a lay. And if Mackenzie really wants to get on the fast track accelerated line, she should try and sell $1,000 worth of product within like 40 days to jump up to the next tier. All right, here's where things get shady to say the least. In addition to the initial startup cost, participants had to pay an annual membership fee and a website hosting fee, plus the cost of marketing materials, stuff like personalized business cards, images for social media, etc. Then the actual makeup arrives. It's priced at like a super high-end makeup brand, but the actual product is middle of the road at best. Jane Marie even goes as far as to say that the makeup is straight up gross. Mackenzie supposedly gets a wholesale discount, but because this quote gross makeup is priced so high, she's essentially paying a retail price, then trying to resell it at an even higher markup. So yeah, this is a great arrangement for LimeLife. They're already making money off the markup at the wholesale price and the fees, but it's going to be a tough go for Mackenzie. She's having a tricky time making sales and recruiting people in her downline. But lucky for her, there's Limelife Palooza, a life-changing company convention where you can meet like-minded hashtag girl bosses and get tips and strategies to take your beauty business to the next level. Dude, people are pumped about Limelife Palooza, and they share their excitement on social media, including one beauty ambassador who shares that she is missing her best friend's wedding just to go to this convention. So Mackenzie attends Limelife Palooza, and according to her, things aren't exactly popping off. There's a lot of talks from motivational speakers about mindset and attitude, stuff like how to create a vision board, but not a lot of specific tips and strategies on how folks can grow their business. At one point, participants break off into small groups and their tasks to share with each other tactics that have brought them success. And yeah, again, not much shakes loose during these sessions either. Everyone's at Limelife Palooza because they don't have the answers and they're looking for guidance. The saddest part happens when attendees volunteer to share their stories about why they joined Limelife. One person wants to raise extra money so her husband doesn't have to work so hard and he can get a full eight hours of sleep at night. Another wants to send her disabled son to a better school. 
and another wants the extra money so she can buy a headstone for her father who passed away unexpectedly. Yeah, it gets pretty real, man. And there's a clear pattern that emerges. A lot of these attendees have poured their last bit of savings into starting their Lime Life business. They followed all the recommendations, did their best to sell, reinvest in their inventory, throw the parties, and they've exhausted everyone in their network, and yet they can't seem to make their business work. Lime Life Palooza was their last-ditch effort to turn things around. And instead of getting actionable tips, they're told their mindset is wrong and to make a vision board. At this point, I'm like, please stop the ride. I just want to get off. So to lighten things up, we are treated to an entire episode of juicy stories from people who left messages for Jane Marie, sharing their wacky accounts of attempts to be recruited or how they were directly involved with some sketchy MLMs. This episode is a goldmine. We also hear how this direct sales dream has become a nightmare for people. Going out of business sales are so ubiquitous on social media, they have their own acronym, Goob Sales, where distributors have reached their breaking point and need to sell off their entire inventory in hopes of recouping some of their losses. Yeah, so at this point, we have a whole lot of stories, but not great sets of data when it comes to profits and losses. Part of it is because these companies aren't keeping great records. Weird, it's kind of like these numbers have no bearing on their bottom line. So the stats on how many people lose money vary widely depending on who's the source. I've seen everything from 50% to 99% of all participants lose money. I will say that a common number I've seen across the board is that 90 to 99% of those who partake in multi-level marketing companies only receive a couple hundred dollars in commission per year. If you're only receiving a couple hundred dollars and you paid at least that initial startup cost, it's not looking like you're making much, man. On top of that, if you're throwing parties with food, drinks, giving away products, I'm guessing you're spending more than your annual commission check. And to be fair, nearly every business is a risk. Conventional businesses, 20% fail in the first two years. But Jane Marie gives a beautiful example of what makes a conventional business different from an MLM. She talks about the little cafe she opened up with her dad in Michigan. They ran it for three years and then it went out of business. Jane Marie lost money. But that money went to her employees, local farms, and shops who supplied the restaurant. When an MLM participant goes out of business, that money goes to the folks at the top. They win even if you lose. And yes, some direct sales companies are way worse than others. But overall, this is a crappy model that is in desperate need of a beauty makeover. So who's in charge of making this happen? Well, in the final episode, we learn about the current state of affairs and the very close political connections direct sales companies have with our government representatives. For example, take the Chamber of Commerce, the largest lobbying group in the United States that advocates for the interests of businesses. Well, Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel was the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce in 1980. Later on, his son Stephen became chairman in 2001. Every president since Reagan has received large political donations from MLMs like Amway 
and lobbying groups that represent them, such as the Direct Sales Association. During the Reagan era, the other Amway co-founder, Richard DeVos, was the finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. George H.W. Bush received large political contributions during his election from MLMs. Bill Clinton made a video for the direct sales lobby, and he even made a speech on behalf of Amway in Japan, plus opened doors for MLM partnerships with China. And oh, hey, look, it's the first female Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. When she left the State Department, she started her own advisory firm and became a brand ambassador for Herbalife. Madeleine Albright's firm earned an estimated $10 million over six years. See, all you haters out there, you can make money off Herbalife. Rinse and repeat this cozy relationship packed with political contributions with the second Bush administration, Obama, and Trump. But then, you guys, in 2017, the Anti-Pyramid Promotional Scheme Act, or H.R. 3409, is put forth before Congress. Finally, it looks like we're going to see some retooling of this flawed business model. But weird, it looks like the people promoting the Anti-Pyramid Promotional Scheme Act are the direct sales lobbies and the MLM companies. Oh, it's actually a pro-MLM business-as-usual bill that would redefine what a pyramid scheme is. Whether or not this bill was going to pass was the big climax of the Dream Season 1 when it first aired. It was like a will they or won't they. I'm happy to report this bill died somewhere along the subcommittee process. Thanks, bureaucracy. Ah, my takeaway? Watch out, man! These MLMs continue to pop out everywhere. So stay alert and also be compassionate to those who are currently or have previously been part of an MLM. And if that person was you, share your honest story with others. Don't be ashamed if you lost money. It could have happened to anyone and honestly probably has because at least one in 13 adults have participated in an MLM. My other takeaway? I just love the first season of The Dream. I loved exploring the promise and the early history of MLMs and then how things got so twisted and distorted along the way. It makes me feel like everyone's just royally screwed this up with their greed and there really could be a way to create a network sales business that actually works and empowers its participants to make money through sharing products that really just sell themselves. It wouldn't even feel like work. It would feel like a holiday, a magical holiday. Or better yet, holiday magic. Oh, wait, no, I hear it now. Gosh, I was wondering how I ended up in this coffin in the middle of a seminar in a Bay Area motel. (laughs) Silly Angela, you've done it again. Yes, that was The Dream Season 1, baby. Jane Marie, call me. I'd love to join your downline. And while I'm waiting to hear back from Jane Marie, you can reach out and network with me. Email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. And any sales pitches for fruity beauty business products will be met with a watermelon smasher. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. 
So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we are back. You guys, this is such a great week for true crime. I'm excited to check out I Am Not a Monster Season 2. And I also have the great post office trial in my queue. Both properties are from the BBC. Plus Dateline's new show, Mortal Sin. And if you listen to Dr. Death Season 3, Miracle Man, there's a docuseries currently on Netflix called Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife, all about this case. It's awesome to see some faces that go with the names, but this series did leave a lot out that the podcast covers. I can't wait to do a future deep dive, uh, maybe a romantic Valentine's Day episode. But for now, here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Witnessed Fade to Black. Here's a synopsis from the show page. When L.A. screenwriter Gary Devereaux mysteriously disappears in the summer of 1997, Weird coincidences lead family and friends to believe he may have been the victim of foul play, possibly because of his mysterious ties to the CIA. Gary was on the way home from finishing his latest script, which was allegedly going to be based in part on real events that occurred during the American invasion of Panama, and that script vanished along with him and his vehicle. All right, I am currently on episode five titled Death is the Most That Can Happen. At the beginning, I'm like, yo, I don't know, Gary's Widow. I think this is starting to sound like a reach. But then by the end, I'm like, yo, the CIA totally did this, you guys. Listen along to Witness Fade to Black and let me know if you think I'm venturing into crackpot territory. At the number two spot, we have The Wedding Scammer. Here's a reminder from the show page. Have you ever been scammed? In The Ringer's first true crime podcast, host Justin Sales tracks a mysterious figure who once wronged him. A man with a lot of aliases, a lot of failed businesses, and a trail of victims. Justin follows him through a sham media company, a series of ruined weddings and beyond, trying to find answers. The police can't offer any help, but maybe he can uh, I just finished the final episode. I'm still wrestling with how I feel about the scammer. In some ways, he doesn't behave like a typical swindler we've seen in other properties. He admits to some guilt, and he has multiple conversations with Justin on the record. He even pays back some of the money. But then in other ways, he behaves exactly like a typical swindler, continuing to deny even when faced with undeniable evidence, and he eventually ghosts everyone. I don't know, man. It's tricky. I really want some time to go by and have an update episode. But for now, that's a wrap on season one of The Wedding Scammer, a fabulous ride from start to finish. And at the number one spot, we have Ear Witness. Here's a rundown from the show page. One July night in 1995, Deputy Sheriff William G. Hardy was shot behind the Crown Sterling Suites Hotel in Birmingham, Alabama. 
At the same time as the murder, at least 10 people saw Tafora's Johnson four miles away at a popular nightclub called T's Place. But detectives zeroed in on him as a main suspect in Deputy Hardy's murder anyway, ultimately resulting in Tafora's being tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. For over a quarter century, Tafora's has been confined to a five-foot by eight-foot cell on Alabama's death row. The story of Taforis Johnson and the state's enthusiasm for the death penalty in the face of such troubling evidentiary flaws brings to light the failings of a criminal justice system run amok. Ugh, the show is such a gut punch, but I'm so glad I listened to the whole series. It's a top-tier show. This has the power to bring real change, and I want to shout about this case from the rooftops. As for the listening experience, it's evenly loaded, very well-paced. You keep getting shocking pieces of new information in every episode. There was a detail released at the beginning of episode 7. I was driving in my car, and if I had had any liquid in my mouth, I would have spray-painted my car's interior. This case is appalling. Put this one on your list, share it with your friends, let's spread the word about Ear Witness. Now for my Miss of the Week. We have the Pirate of Prague. Here's a summary from the show page. A charming young Czech promises staggering returns. An entire country's oil industry is up for grabs. America's top investors want in. Sounds too good to be true. Damn right it is. This is a story of private jets, $20,000 dinners, and suitcases stuffed with cash. It's also a tale about the collapse of communism and the free-for-all that followed and the birth of oligarchs. And it's the story of plain old human greed, of just how far the rich may go to get even richer. Oh, I'm so bummed about this show. This story is right up my alley. I love these kinds of cases, but terrible execution. This is overwritten, way too snarky, and dare I say tryhard. And I know that's pretty rich coming from me, but I'm only a junior tryhard in training compared to this example of PhD level trying the hardest. The Pirate of Prague, I want to learn so much more about you, but not from this show. And hey, look what I have handy here. A watermelon smasher. Find out next week who will be in the number one spot now that Ear Witness has concluded. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show did you take a watermelon smasher to? I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding. I love a scandal. To watch the world burn and lose their minds after finding out the fine print eliminated another's entitlement. 
or an ironic twist where a saint becomes a Satan. I especially love it when this involves those within the third sector. For years the greedy and evil have hidden behind the good name charity for too long. I myself a witness to these wrongdoings, decided to create a podcast to uproot their stories buried just a little too soon in the archive. Uncharitable is a narrative, storytelling podcast about true crimes and questionable practices related to that third sector. So join me, host Odea, as I attempt to smoke out the walls that dress in a sheep's clothing. Seek us wherever you find your podcasts. Or consider contributing to the community on Instagram, Reddit or X.